All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series uh, that uh, we've begun on the the disciplines of the godly life and so um, how to practice them. And so our text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Three whole words, and uh, we'll see what we can get out of this great text. And I think afterwards you'll think, man, that, that's great. So let's pray. Since we're going to be talking about prayer, it's probably important that we start off with that. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning as your people to worship together corporately, to sing praises to your name, to worship in fellowship, to worship in giving, to worship in the hearing of your word. I pray, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, we would understand it clearly, that we would have wisdom in applying it, and Father, that we would leave here better equipped to really grow in godliness and give you glory with our lives. And so, Father, we pray all these things in your name, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the other day, my wife and I were talking, we were talking about, I, was, I told her I was going to be pre- preaching on impromptu prayer or spontaneous prayer, and just, you know, how you just kind of pray, talk to God throughout the day in various circumstances, and we were talking about how pretty radical, radically different our prayer life was when we first came to know the Lord. I came to know the Lord out of a very miserable, wretched situation, and so God was a refuge. And I would, you know, I lived on the border of the Forest Service, and so I would just go out and just pray and talk with God. I just talked with God. It seemed so normal and natural a thing to do. It's like, yeah, you know, Jesus died for me, and, you know, God loves me, and he forgives me, and, you know, I'm going to talk with him. And it seemed very you know, like the thing to do. Uh, before coming to Christ, of course, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I did not want to think about God, and I certainly didn't want to talk to Him because I was scared of Him. Uh, I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew that if God existed, I was going to go to hell, and that scared me. So I just tried to partition my mind off from God and just lived uh, my life just thinking about me and myself. But there came a time in my life when I was saved. And when I was saved and I was born again and my life began to change, talking to God just seemed like just the, nobody even told me. I just did it. It just seemed so right. It seemed natural. It was like the Apostle Paul when when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. The first thing he does is, is praise because that's what you do when you come to know Jesus. And so that was my experience. And it wasn't until a few years later that I actually started uh, going to a good Bible teaching church. I started getting discipleship and good teaching. And I started learning about what we talked about last week, structured prayer. And I really struggled with that. I th- I don't know why. I, I I just kind of thought that it was unnecessary. I talked with God all day long, so why bother, you know, going to a place and getting a prayer journal? It seemed very uh, structured. And um, I just didn't, you know, I didn't do well there for a while. I was very hit and miss. And I think in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm talking to God anyway, so why bother? And, um, but... As I begin to grow in the Lord, I realize, you know, I need to discipline myself to really spend time in prayer and not just go through life, you know, shooting up arrows to God only. Well, Lisa was telling me she had the exact antithetical experience. She came to know the Lord. She was really good in structured prayer because she lived with some gals who were 
faithful Christians and they always spent time with the Lord and prayed. And so she did because they were watching, you know, and when people are watching, go, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to have my quiet time. And so she said she was very good at kind of like a legalistic thing. You know, every day I prayed, it was kind of a little badge of boasting. And, and she was pretty proud of the fact that she had structured prayer. She said, well, she, uh, had trouble with is kind of just praying throughout the day. Kind of spontaneously, because one of the temptations is, is, is if you spend time with the Lord faithfully and you develop that habit in your life that we talked about last week, you can kind of have this temptation to get God over with for the day. You know, I got up, I read my Bible, I prayed and I'll check in tomorrow morning again. You kind of just get God over with and you, you leave him until the next day. Well, uh, the solution, of course, is not to just pray structured prayer and not to just pray spontaneous prayers, but really is to learn to do both. And last week, since we talked about structured prayer this morning, we want to talk about this kind of spontaneous, impromptu prayer with God. You know, a while back I was convicted, I was reading something and I thought, man, I need to pray more. I need to pray way more. So I I don't think I pray during the day like I should. And so I started paying attention. I discovered, well, I do. I just didn't realize it anymore. I just, it becomes such a part of your life. I think you don't realize you're doing it. It's kind of like if I asked you, did you tie your shoes? And everybody kind of looks down. Yes. Um, do you remember tying your shoes? Mm, a lot of you probably don't, but you look down and they're tied and no one else did it. So you must've done it. And that's kind of how it is. Once you get into the habit of talking with God, of praying to God throughout the day, I think a lot of times, at least for me, I didn't realize I was even doing it anymore. I was actually convicted about it. I thought, man, I need to start doing this. And then when I started paying attention, I thought, well, I am doing it. So not as much as I should or I want to, but yeah, we need to have both this kind of spontaneous prayer and we need to have impromptu prayer. So last week we started into this series on the godly disciplines and we said they're called the godly disciplines for two reasons. If you don't practice them, you won't be godly. And two, if you're going to practice them, you've got to discipline yourself. It's just the way it is. So there are certain things that God gives us by his grace to help us grow. Not all of our spiritual growth happens from invisible forces behind the scenes working on us, you know, zapping us to make us more like Jesus. There is some of that. There's a lot of it going on behind the scenes. But sometimes God says, here is a Bible. Read it. Here are believers. Fellowship. Here is an opportunity to share your faith. Tell the gospel. Here is, you know, God gives you things, and these things are more tangible things, tools that you need to put to work so you can grow in godliness. And that process of growing in godliness is called sanctification. Sanctification is that process where over the course of time, if you took all the ups and downs out, you would have an incline in the direction of Christ's likeness over the course of your life. Like Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God is faithful and that over the course of time, he's going to be using you so that you grow in sanctification. You grow in in godliness. And that process is called sanctification. And the means that we get 
to become more godly is by practicing these godly disciplines. D.A. Carson warns the church saying, quote, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to the scripture. Faith and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated, end quote. You know, there's kind of a spiritual version of the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. If you've ever studied physics, you learn about the scientific constant. And it basically says that everything is winding down. Everything in an open system decays or runs down to its basic elemental state. For instance, if you took your house and you didn't touch it for a thousand years, you would have a dirt mound at the end of the thousand years. Your, the, your roof would slowly rot and your, the termites would eat it up and, and the, the mortar would begin to crumble and then the metal in the walls would oxidize and it would collapse and dirt and leaves would blow in and turn into compost and pretty soon there would just be a dirt mound there where your house was. It would just decay to its elemental states. Well, you can... Make sure that doesn't happen. If you put organized energy into the system, replace the roof, paint the house, repair things that are broken. As you constantly do that, that's why there's really old houses. People have put organized energy into them to keep them functioning. Well, that's kind of how it is with our walk with the Lord, but worse and faster. It's like exercising. You know, the older you get, you realize, man, it took me four months to get into shape and one week to get out of shape. You know, it's just, if you don't keep after it, man, you just like, you know, your gravity increases. You know, the couch is your favorite place. It just stuck to it like a magnet. You picture in your mind kind of a a long elevator, a really long elevator, and you're at the bottom and the elevator or escalator is coming down towards you. It's one of those, you know, stairways that move. So the escalator's coming down towards you and at the top of it, you see God. And God says, come to me. Okay? And so you go, okay. So you start walking against the flow of the escalator and it's coming down at you. Well, if you try and sprint, you're going to collapse and it's going to drag you to the bottom. And so we can sprint for a little bit, but we got to rest. But if you, if you hold still, you're going down. The best thing is a constant faithfulness, a constant pace that you just march, 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 march. And you walk a little bit faster than the escalator moves downward. And over the course of time, you're going to grow closer to God. But if you neglect walking, if you stop or turn around and go down, you, you're losing ground, aren't you? So there must be a constant exertion of organized discipline in the direction of God, or you are going to stagnate. That's if you walk just fast enough 
So you don't go down, you don't go up. And you'll wear yourself out and never get off the third step. Or if you fall into sin, you're going down. You've turned around. So our whole life, we're trying to get up there. And depending, you know, we're all at a different place. But what I'm trying to get you to see here is there needs to be a consistent effort. It's not a sprint. It is a consistent effort and discipline that God wants us all to engage in so that we can grow in godliness. And so this morning, we want to talk about the discipline of impromptu prayer. Now, our text is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. And if you haven't turned there, turn there in your Bible. It's a gigantic passage of three words, and uh, we'll see if we can get through it today. It may be a four-part series. No, just kidding. Um, But Thessalonica was a church that was pretty an ideal church. It was, Paul has tons of great things to say about them at the beginning of this book. Uh, Thessalonica is located uh, on the Macedonian coast and kind of the northeast of the Aegean Sea and kind of northern Greece uh, is this town, a major town. And there was a church there that Paul planted and it was doing great. They had a couple problems. The first problem was is that some false teachers came in and confused them about the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ. And so some of them had kind of sold out and done the, you know, herald camping thing and you know they were kind of waiting around and and then Jesus didn't come. And then they got hungry. So then they were kind of going over to other believers who were still working and still had jobs and said, "Hey, uh, uh could you spare a little change?" And Paul says, don't give them any. Don't feed them. Let them go hungry. Let them work and earn their own bread. Because if a man does not work, then neither let him eat. So there was a little bit of busybody stuff going around. People living in an undisciplined lifestyle. But we also know when we look at the book that there were some other things. There were some holiness issues going on. People weren't growing in the Lord. They'd kind of, you know, started off well and they had a lot of good things going for them. They'd kind of, you know, got to the middle of the stair, the escalator, and then they, they weren't going up and they weren't going down. Some were going down, but a lot of them were just seeing kind of treading there, treading there. And he's going, man, step up the pace a little bit and move on up. In godliness, don't just stagnate there. And so in the latter half of the book, he gives them all kinds of exhortations. And our text is found in this very practical section. I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. I counted 14 different things we're supposed to do here. Our text is found in the middle. But I want you to see the context of just this whole shotgun approach of a whole bunch of things that are kind of unrelated in one respect and then all related because they all are about living a holy life. And so this is what he said, starting in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." 
Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So you can see how it's just kind of like, you know, you're just getting hit from everywhere. Just a huge blast of all these different topics. You know, you can, you can see how it's just a, just a whole grab bag of things we all need to do. So we want to look at verse 17. And, and what we're going to do, and you'll probably see this more in the series, I'm just going to talk about the doctrine, meaning of the text, and then we'll talk about application. We're going to try and make it as simple as we can. So first, understand what impromptu prayer is and is not. So look at verse 17. There's only three words in the English and two words in the Greek. The text says, pray without ceasing. The Greek literally reads, unceasingly pray unceasingly is put up front for emphasis that's what's being emphasized and surely unceasing prayer would include um, times of structured prayer but obviously it must include spontaneous prayer why because you can't just live in your prayer closet you've got to come out and cook and change diapers and go to work and mow the lawn and you do stuff. You know, you can't just always be on your knees in a dark place praying. Um, no, the whole point here is that this implies that there is a kind of ongoing prayer. The word prayer is a command and it's a command that kind of has um, embedded in it uh, that you need to make yourself or cause yourself or participate in the action of prayer. You need to do something here. This is something God has given you, one of these gracious gifts of God. I'm going to give you access to boldly approach the throne of grace, and I want you to take opportunity type of a thing. And then he says to do it unceasingly. And the word unceasingly is a word, it's a compound word that's negated. Uh, what I mean by that is it is it is it uh, um, is a word that's really from two parts. One part is means between, and the other part means leave. If you put them together, it's to leave something between, to have an intermission, to have a break, to have a gap, and then added to that is what is called the alpha prefix, and that's like when we have moral, the word moral, and then we have the word amoral, which means no moral. So when you have a word that says leave a gap, and then you put a negator in front of it, you're saying, I want to have no gap, unceasing, regular occurrence. That's what we're talking about here. So he says, we need to do that unceasingly. And Paul uses this word only in a few other places. One of them is at the first chapter of this book. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, and you'll see where he... You'll actually go back to verse 2, so we can kind of see we don't pop into the middle of the sentence there. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul is given his greeting, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers constantly. There is the same word translated unceasingly in our text, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. He uses it again in chapter 2, verse 13. So look over there, page or so. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly... 
There it is again. There's our word. Thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The only other place the word appears is in Romans 1.9, where again Paul uses it to speak of unceasing prayer. So, We've got a pretty basic text here. You got your command. You get with the whole business of prayer. How often? Unceasingly. So that's pretty easy. The problem is, is with the application of it. Because you're thinking, well, Jack, you know, I mean, the text is clear. Obviously, pray without ceasing is a good thought. But I've got a job. I've I've got things I got to do and errands to run and kids to raise and a wife to love. And, you know, I mean, I can't always, you know, be in prayer. I got to there's other stuff I got to do. So, you know, it seems kind of unrealistic, maybe that uh, kind of a fiction, uh, a kind of a good thought that really is uh, for all intents and purposes, very impractical because there's nobody who could do that. So maybe you're thinking that maybe that seems rather unrealistic. Well, this apparent problem can be solved in two ways. First, to understand what Paul really means when he says pray without ceasing, he isn't saying never stop praying. He's saying have constant times of faithful prayer. Um, He's not saying pray with uninterrupted Uh, state where you're only talking to God your whole life. That's not what he's saying. Pray as a routine. Pray as a habit. You know, that's what the word means. And it's, you don't have to like make it super wooden. Like, man, if you weren't praying on Caesar, you were in sin. Um, Thinking that we have to pray every single second. And you're trying to talk to somebody. Just say, oh, let me pray one time. Hold on a second. Let me, let me, I'm trying to talk to God too. Yes, I'm listening. I'm trying to, hold on a second. You know, I mean, you can't, that doesn't work, does it? It just, it's unrealistic. But it is very realistic. We just don't try to push the word beyond what it obviously means. Like if I, if you, let's see, went for a walk with your wife, you know, one summer evening and, and you were going out and you're talking, right? And, uh, and you know, she says something and, and you respond and maybe you say something and she responds and there may be a minute or two or three where you don't even say anything. Periodically you talk, you dialogue, unless your wife's mad and then she may talk constantly. But, um, you know, you aren't talking every second and we don't have to make it that way. You know, if I, if I were to say, yeah, I painted my house yesterday, you say, oh, so from sun up to sundown, the only thing you did was sit there and paint your house with a two inch brush. That's all you did. You never ate. You never drank. You never stopped to get more paint at the paint store. You only painted, you painted, painted, painted. And if you didn't, you're lying to me. Well, no, see, that doesn't, we understand, yeah, you take breaks, and yeah, you know, I ran to the paint store and got some more paint, and yeah, I stopped to have lunch, and take a nap, and eat some cookies, and, you know, whatever. I got to, you know, but the whole point is that over the course of the day, paint was my big deal. That's what I did. And so that's really all that Paul is saying. So that solves the problem, because we can, throughout the day, pray. The other solution, which does not exclude the first one, but really adds to it, is to make sure you understand what prayer is and is not. If your thought of prayer is, is you know, 
bowing your head, closing your eyes. Then that is very dangerous if you're driving to work on the freeway. I mean, you can do it and you will be talking with God rather quickly. So we can't go through life, you know, running machinery and driving our cars and typing or whatever. You know, we can't live with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. And so if your thought of prayer is only that, then yes, the command is going to be an impossible. But if you understand prayer as communing, fellowshipping, talking with God, having thoughts about God, um, reasoning with God, asking God for things, praising him, you know, things like that all throughout the day, then it's very doable. And that's really what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, all through the day, you need to have a communion with God. You need to be talking with God. You need to be like Enoch, who walked with God for 300 years. You know, and he just talked with God. He knew God was there. You wake up in the morning, you're thinking about God. You ask him to help you for the day. And as you're getting ready, you talk to God and you thank him for your food. And you pray a little, you know, uh, as you're eating your cereal and you're thanking him for your cup of coffee. And you spend some time, you have a little structured prayer. And then you go and you're driving to work and the guy cuts you off and you do a little praying. And, you know, things like that. You're, you're praying all the way through the day. Now, even if like, you're like a computer programmer and you're sitting down and you're, you're sitting there and you're typing code into your computer. I mean, that seems like something that it would be very difficult when you're trying to figure out some computer code to try and, you know, have a dialogue with God. But really, no. Because on the way to work, you're asking God to help you. And since God knows your thoughts, you don't even have to utter the words. You just sit down and say, Lord, help me to do a good job today for your glory. You pull up the file and say, yeah, Lord, help me to, you know, program today with the least amount of lines and to make everything work. And you're typing away or whatever. And, you know, that that's fine. That works great. All through day, Lord, help me with this. All of a sudden you see your phone ring at the boss. Lord, help me to keep my job you know you pick up you talk with your boss oh good then you thank the lord thank you lord i still have my job you know these are the kinds of things that christians do all day long you're having a dialogue with god um you're talking with god you know whether you're the landscape gardener and you're out there killing weeds and mowing the lawn you talk with god all day that would be even easier you know but even if like you're you know the ceo of your company says i want to talk to you lord help me um, you know, and then all of a sudden he's talking to you about things. He's got concerns. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the words to say. Help me not to offend him. I want to get that raised. You know, I mean, you're talking with God the whole time. You can do it in the cracks of all of your life. And this is what we're talking about. This is the goal and what we mean by communing or impromptu prayer or praying without ceasing is to have that link with God all day long. The Ritchie Commentary series says of our text, quote, This does not mean praying in relays all day and night, as is practiced by certain religious orders. But it does mean that a child of God should be in the spirit of prayer, in conscious communion with God at all times, wherever he happens to be, whether at home, at work, or in the gathering of the saints, end quote. E.W. Vine, commenting on our text, also says, quote, The believer is to have recourse to prayer at all seasons and upon all matters. But prayer is the exercise of the renewed man. And, like every other spiritual activity, calls for diligence and watchfulness, lest its power be forgotten or its occasions let slip. For the maintenance of the spiritual life depends upon our talking with God 
end quote. It is really one of the most critical parts of your life to have communion with God. You've got to have communion with God. We might call it walking in the Spirit, same thing. Being filled with the Spirit, same thing. Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, same thing. Walking in truth, same thing. Walking in the light, same thing. Constant communion with God. So, do you see the goal clearly now? We need to pray without ceasing. Have that constant conversation, dialogue. It's like God is on the phone. He calls you up. The moment you get saved, ring, hello, this is God. You've got access now. I'll be waiting on the line. And so we go, okay. So we talk with God throughout the day. We may be doing something and say, God, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still there. Um, and so we talk with him. It's like we have one of those little, you know, Borg ear things, you know, that uh, people wear. And so you can just talk. And God's always hooked up. And he's always online. And he wants you to talk to him. He wants to hear from you. And he doesn't want to hear from you so that you can give him information. He already knows everything and knew everything before the foundation of the world because he's all knowing. He wants you to talk to him so that he can bless your life. So he can bear your burden. So he can answer your quest. So you can praise him and thank him. And so he can give you wisdom when you request it. He wants to do you good. He wants you to depend on him, believe in him, trust in him. He wants to do you good. And prayer is one of the ways he does you good. And so he wants you to link up and stay online. He doesn't want you to go through the whole day thinking, oh man, pick up the phone. I am here. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. It's like, yeah, I'll talk to you next Sunday. That's not good. We need to be unceasingly in communion with God. So that's what we're after. That's what unceasing prayer we're after. Now, how do you discipline yourself to be in a spirit of prayer at all time? And this is the trick. This is kind of a difficult thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he had massive knowledge of the truth. I mean, he knew the truth. He even said that as far as external obedience, according to the law, he was blameless. He was, he was a perfect obeyer of the law. There was only one thing missing. Paul didn't know God. He was exceedingly religious and lost. On his way to hell. No relationship with God. Doing everything externally for himself, for the approval of men, but not living for the glory of God. And so once he comes to Christ, his whole life changes. His whole life changes. And what he writes here is really the core, the core of all these commands. This is the core section. Look at verse 16 of our text. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This triad of of exhortations is all about the heart, about the soul, about the inner man, not about externals. Rejoicing comes from the heart. Praying without ceasing and communion with God comes from the heart. Giving thanks comes from the heart. If you're going to be godly, you must have a heart relationship with God. Not just, I come to church and I do the things and I, people see me and they see on the outside that I'm going through these things and so they think I'm good and I'm glad they think I'm good and I've got these people fooled and I feel good about it. That's not good. What is good is that you love the Lord from your heart and that 
you have this spirit of communion with God where you're rejoicing and praying and thanking. If you have that, that is the nuclear reactor of your spiritual growth. That is what makes a person godly to have that online all the time. So the question then is this. If communion with God, if praying without ceasing, if having fellowship with God or walking in the spirit or whatever you want to call it, if that is if that is the key to living a holy life and a blessed life and a life that's really tight with God, then what is it which causes that to stop? And what I want to do is I want to first talk about what breaks your communion with God, then how to restore your communion with God, and finally, how to enhance that communion with God. First thing, what breaks your communion with God? And you'll probably think of what this is. Sin. Sin. Breaks your communion with God. Whenever you decide to sin, if God is this way, and his word is this way, and you decide to sin, you do this on God. You hang up on God and turn the other way. In the opposite direction of God. You cannot have communion with God. You cannot walk with God and walk according to the flesh. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, these two are antithetical. They are opposites of one another. You, You can't do both. You can't do both. So whenever you decide to live from your, for yourself and put self on the throne and do your own thing according to your will because you want to, you're committing self idolatry and you have turned your back on God. You've hung up on him. Now he's still on the line going, hello, pick up the phone, pick up the phone. But you've hung up on him because you've turned the other way. The, the moment you choose not to think of God, you turn your back on him. You know, and we do these little things in our mind like we know this sin in our life and we know we probably should confess it, but we don't want to. So we've kind of a little partition situation going on here. Lord, I'm just going to keep this behind this little piece of rice paper screen. And, um, and we're just not going to go there. God says, listen, that's all I see. That's all I say. I only see what's behind the screen. Get it out from there. No, 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 no. No, no, no. We're going to talk with you. I'm going to serve. I'm going to pray. I'm going to teach in Sunday school class. I'm going to do my Christian life. I'm going to don't, don't make me go behind the screen. The screen. I want you to go behind the screen. I mean, that's all he wants to get by. Tear that thing down. I want to see it. Show me it. Bring it out here. Drag it out here in front of me. I mean, that's what he wants. He wants you to get it out there so that he can deal with it. He can deal with it. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you an example. Turn to Genesis 3. And I like this because in Genesis 3, we have a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect environment who are perfect and without sin. And so this is really a great a great text to look at because Adam and Eve at this point have perfect unbroken communion with God. No sin separates them from God as we arrive at Genesis 3. They've been given one simple prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can do anything they want, go anywhere they want, eat any other tree they want. They can throw rocks, you know, they can run around see the animals, they do anything they want. They've got total freedom. One little rule out of do anything you want, one little rule, don't eat of that tree. Now, look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? 
Now, Satan knew good and well what God said. But the question puts God in a bad light, doesn't it? And makes God seem overly extreme. Did God really say, you can't eat anything? Nothing. What kind of God is that? That is that, That's just beyond reasonable. Now, God, of course, never said that, but he's planted the thought, hasn't he? Look at what Eve says, verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Eve states the truth. She may have added or touch it, but we don't know everything that God told them. We are only told a very condensed form. I'm sure God told them a lot of other things. But really, even if he didn't say don't touch it, how are you going to eat the fruit without touching it? You know, you got to get your mouth on it. So even if you put your hands behind your back, you're still going to have to touch it, right? So the, the prohibition implies no touch. So that's fine. That's fine. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, This right here is just the bald-faced lie. The bald-faced lie. Satan contradicts the word of God, and he just says, it's not true. It's not true. Now, at this point, and you, you just need to see this. This is so crafty, man. It's just so crafty. Satan has turned the discussion away from God to Eve. Before he said, just asked a little question, has God not said? And Eve said, God said. And then Satan says, you, you surely will not die. Where is God? He then says, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God and you will know good and you will know evil. Do you see that? It's all now about Eve. He has switched the focus very subtly away from let's talk about what God said to let's talk about you and what you deserve and what you need and what you want. I just want you to know whenever you start thinking about yourself. You're, you're just on the precipice of hanging up on God. I'm telling you. Whenever your thoughts go away from thinking of God, dwelling on God, considering his word, praising, thanking, those types of things. Whenever you start thinking about, well, I'm not. I mean, that's like kink. And you've, you've hung up on him as fast as you can move your arm. And so Eve at this part, is she's been in communion with God all the way up to this point, and Satan then is laying on her, getting her to think of herself, and look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Eve, now thinking of herself, not God, breaks communion with God and does not does exactly what she wants, not what God wants. She saw with her eyes the tree and that 
It would be good food for her, and it was a delight to her, and she desired to make her wise, and so she reached out her hand, and she grabbed the whole of it, and she ate it for herself, and gave some to her husband. I mean, she is just, she's hung up on God. And the first sin was not her eating the fruit. The first sin was when she hung up on God in her mind, And then the sin was the consequence, the external proof she hung up on God on the inside. James describes it this way in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So here we have the same exact process. You look, and you may still be in communion with God, and then you go, I'm hanging up on the Lord. You become your own God, you live like a practical atheist, you then lust, you dwell on that lust, and then you act it out. And it brings forth death. That's exactly what we see happening in the garden. God glorifying prayer ceases when we turn towards sin. Now you can still pray, obviously. You can still go hypocritically in prayer to God and say, Lord, I'm here and you know, here I am, your faithful servant. And even in the back of your mind, there's this siren going off. Talk about the sin. Bring out the dead, you know, maggot-infested carcass that you've got there hiding behind the door. God smells it. He sees it. He knows it's there. Bring it out. Bring it out. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd bless me in my job. God's going, la, la, la. I mean, God has a mute button at that point. When we, we have unconfessed sin in our life, God pushes the mute button. And that mute button strains out everything but what? Confession. Confession, which is our second point. What restores your communion with God. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John at the whole other end of your Bible. So if you've got that new Bible and you've wanted to break it in, this is the morning. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at starting in verse 5. And this shows you how critical it is to make sure that when you blow it, and you are because all Christians blow it, that you quickly confess your sins and get your communion link restored. You pick up the phone. You begin to link up with God again. Walk in the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Look at verse 5. He says, 1 John 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in them there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. I do not practice the truth. Now, just stop there. Notice you can have fellowship or communion with God if you're walking in darkness. Why? Because God's this way and darkness is that way. So you can't say, I'm going to walk with God. You know, that doesn't work. You're walking in the direction of sin. You're going down the escalator. God's saying, I'm up here. I'm up here. And you're going, no, no, I'm, I'm walking with you. No, no, you're deluding yourself. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So not only is it necessary to have communion with God to keep our sins confessed, to walk in obedience, but we also have 
close and real fellowship with one another. We, it even stifles our fellowship with one another when we're in sin because we're not walking in the Spirit and those other people are. And so we're never going to have the fellowship that we need to have if we're in sin and they're not. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Notice how it's this whole sandwich there. John says it over and over again. If you are sinning, if you're walking in the darkness, if you're sinning, if you're not walking in the truth, you don't have fellowship with God. You don't have communion with God. You don't have fellowship with other people. You've hung up on God. And then what he says, and just to paraphrase, um, verse 9, he says this. If we are always in the process of confessing our sins throughout the day as we commit them, God is always going to be faithful to always be forgiving us our sins and to always be cleansing us from our unrighteousness. That's how we should understand it. So what that means is, and what's really cool is, God's saying, listen, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. I know you're a sinner, and you know you're a sinner. So let's just get this thing out. It's not He's not making a contrast here between Christians who don't sin and Christians who do sin. No. The contrast is between Christians who do sin and confess and Christians who do sin and don't confess. Everybody sins. And if you say, you're a liar, he says. And so what we need to realize is that Confessing your sins quickly is the key to having constant communion with God. Because you're going to sin. I'm going to sin. We're all sinners. Things happen to us that eke us. Somebody pushes our button, our wife, a friend, a guy who cut you off, whatever. You know, you... You instantly all of a sudden hang up on God and you go to yourself. You go to your resources. You trust in your flesh or whatever. And when you do that, you need to go, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Instead of just, you know, we kind of just, we're like the sow that returns to the mire after washing or the dog that returns to eat its own vomit, man. We know it's wrong. We've talked to God. We've confessed it over and over again. And then we just go back and it's nasty. So God just says, okay, okay, you buns on. The only thing I want to hear from you now, the only thing I want to hear from you now is you come and confess that. You you tell me what you've done. That's all I'm asking you. Turn from whatever it is. It implies repentance because you can't be pursuing sin and turn to walk with God. You have to leave it. Again, whatever you turned away from God to go pursue, you stop, turn to God, and then you tell him. You just see, God says, get it all out there. Spread it all out in front of me. Go to the people that you sinned against. Go make restitution if necessary. Do whatever it takes. Deal with it and lay it all out. I'm online. You're online with me. And you know, if you're like a normal Christian, you're kind of all day long, hang up, pick up, hang up, pick up, hang up. I mean, that's how we do. That's the Christian life. You know, your guys go, okay, 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 okay. I was waiting for that confession. All right, we're back online again. Oh. Okay, um, I'm waiting again. You know, I mean, all day long, we, we, we're blowing it. And that's because we're sinners. All right, so finally, what are we going to do to enhance our communion with God? So sin is what breaks our communion with God. Confession is what restores our communion with God. So now what are we going to do to enhance our communion with God? And here's a hint. It's the whole theme of this series. 
Practice the godly disciplines. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Memorize your Bible. Meditate on the scriptures. Pray structured prayer. Pray throughout the day. Serve when God gives you opportunity. Share your faith when God gives you an opportunity. Give when God gives you opportunity. Do those things which make you think about God. Read good books. Hang around people who want to talk about God, who discuss God, who share what God's doing in their life. Listen to sermon. You know, whatever it is in your life that's going to get you to think about God more, do that. Do that. And that is what's going to help you walk in holiness with Him. All right. So last week, I gave you some homework. And I know all of you are probably doing it faithfully. Um, I was mostly after those people who weren't doing it faithfully before last week. And so last week we talked about structured prayer times. And we said the best way to start is just to try and be faithful. Just with a little tiny time, like 10 minute window. If you haven't been doing it, start with a 10 minute window. Just try to be faithful for one month, 10 minutes a day, every day. And in order to do this, remember, we said first, plan to do it. Know when you're going to do it. Secondly, have a place to do it so that you aren't interrupted. And thirdly, discover by trial and error what method works best for you. So that was our three-pronged homework for yesterday. Plan on it. Find a place. Find out what works. And just try to be faithful. Once you develop faithfulness... You know, 10 minutes a day. And, you know, you might even be tempted. Oh, man, I want to go farther. You know, it's like, no, no, do not pray more. And, you know, you can if you want. But consistency is the most important part. Once you learn that discipline, then the length of your prayer times will stretch out. Because you want to talk with God because you're being blessed. So, on top of that, we have more homework. This week's homework is first... Confess your sins. Confess your sins. You know, do like the psalmist said. You know, um, you know, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and acquit me of hidden faults. You just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I am this way. I've done this. I've done that. Just spread it all out before the Lord. Just tell him everything. Just pull out the pornography and the lying and the cheating and the mean and angry tempers and the nasty comments and the backbiting and the gossip and the drunkenness and the drugs and whatever. Just dump it all there. And know that when Christ died, his blood is sufficient to cover all that sin and to wash it right as though he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then you can say, okay, there. And God says, okay, clean slate. Walk with me. Walk with me. And then begin your walk. And as soon as you catch yourself sinning, confess it quickly. So uh, the Second thing to do is confess your sin and then ask God, Lord, I want you to help me be sensitive to my sin and I want you to make me convicted of it and remind me to confess it quickly. If you're not in the habit, you need to get in the habit. So ask God for help. Do you think God's going, I'm not going to help you do that. I'm not going to help you like walk with me. That's extreme. Of course he's going to help you. So just say, Lord, I confess everything and, and I know there's things you see that I don't see. I confess those too. And help me to be sensitive to my sin. Help me to see it. And help me to confess it quickly. And then all through the day, just 
Just pray without ceasing. Just shoot up prayers to God. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this now. Help me with this. And Lord, I'm going to do this. And elders a while back were reading a little book by Steve Miller called C.H. Spurgeon on Spiritual Leadership. And there was a section in there that just really was great. I just thought it was such a neat, a neat example. Spurgeon um, wanted so badly to just be in constant communion with God and just to be in prayer about everything and to just pray about everything in his life. And he kept seeing things. Oh, I missed that one. I missed that one. And he was just striving his whole life to do that. And one day he and a friend were walking out in the woods and they were talking and they were laughing and Spurgeon just stopped and he turned to his friend and said, friend, let's stop for a moment and thank God for the laughter. And they just prayed right there in the woods. Isn't that great? Have you ever thanked God for laughter? You need to. We need to thank him for all of his good things. So this week, continue. Now I'm actually going to give you three weeks to get this one down. Because I know some of you are exceedingly stubborn. No. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be gone to New Zealand preaching and preaching and preaching. So when I get back in three weeks, we're going to continue on. But I want you to work at those two things. Structured prayer and unceasing prayer. Those are your two homework assignments. Work at them. It will change your life. Pray with me. Father, we are so glad that we were able to come this morning to hear you speak to us from your word. How great it is to see that your word has the answers we need to walk in communion with you. Help us not to sin. And when we do... Help us to lay it all out there in front of you, knowing that when we confess it to you, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that each of us would see growth in the weeks to come, that we would, we would be faithful in structured prayer and faithful in impromptu prayer, that we would, we would gain ground and take some steps up the elevator and not go down or the escalator and that we would move up in Christ likeness, that we would grow in holiness, that we would pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Father, work in us through those means you have graciously given us that we might be your servants who walk in your spirit for your glory, that we might become more like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.